Hi, and welcome back to the Brando and Joe podcast. For this podcast episode, our guest is Dr. Alan Church. He received his master's and PhD in organizational psychology from Columbia University, served as a senior vice president for global talent management at PepsiCo, and is a co-founder and managing partner at Maestro Consulting. Welcome, Alan. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I think we should start with the uh, the hard hitting questions first. Um, when you worked at PepsiCo, did you get free Pepsi? Uh, yes, <laughs> actually, um, yeah. There's free fountain there, which was great. Um, you you and discounted um, bottles and things from the machine, so it's awesome. And it free Fritos all over the place. Oh, that is pretty cool. Might have to uh, start looking at those internships. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but uh, so going into to PepsiCo, um, is this a, when you found out about global talent management, is this kind of where you saw yourself when you first started your your master's and Ph.D. program? Was this like in your mind, like, oh, I like what I do as talent management. I like that day to day. No, I think um, I mean, talent management as a field didn't really exist until about 2006, even as a label. Right. It sort of came into being then. And we did one of the first psyop sessions on tm actually at the time and i did it with people like ben dowell and rob silzer and they turned around and made a book out of it um strategy driven talent management which is a psyop book in 210 which janine and i edited and since then it's taken off as a field and people are getting jobs now that's like all the jobs that people go into are tm jobs and that's what everybody asked me about in the in the program at teachers college where i teach um but when i first started it was sort of uh, Oregon talent management development, right? So it was more, a little bit more oriented towards OD and a little bit more oriented towards culture. So um, when I first got my master's and PhD, I had no idea what I was doing, right? So I started in clinical psychology, believe it or not, in college, but double majored in sociology at the same time. And I loved the idea of individual perspectives and organizational perspectives, right? Societal at some level. And I, was going down the clinical road and took one class. They had only one class in IO back then, not even TM, forget TM, IO. And I read In Search of Excellence and thought, this is far more engaging than listening to clinical discussions every day, right? As a career, working with leaders, working with data, helping them get better. And so I applied to IO programs and ended up at the Teachers College program at Columbia and very quickly took an internship at IBM and started learning about surveys and some of the talent work they were doing, though it wasn't called TM then. And a couple of years later, I moved into Warner Burke's firm, who was my doctoral advisor, and we worked on a lot of orgs change. And again, leadership development, not called TM yet, but many of the concepts overlap with what people in TM do today. Went to PepsiCo to actually uh, upgrade their 360 and their org surveys. So they had just been through a period where much of that emphasis had been reduced, although they have a history of doing talent really well. And I worked in that space, guys, for about uh, eight years doing individual feedback, culture work, and talent work, although we just didn't call it that, right? So we were looking at data on individuals, figuring out how to uh, target their development, thinking about potential, but all the pieces hadn't come together yet into a talent management strategy, particularly that basically emerged around 210, um, 210, 211, something like that. And the job that I was in um, shifted and morphed and picked up a lot of other things, including talent and data as well. And that started to integrate as well as inclusion came into being too. And that kind of, you know, in the early 2000s, that kind of merged together as well. So um, it didn't start that way. And I didn't even know I was going into it. 
But uh, once I got into it, it was, it was fantastic. And it leveraged all the existing IO tools and, you know, processes and research that, you know, we all know, but it's called something else, which is interesting. Is it like, uh, so is talent management then kind of like an umbrella? And then there's a whole bunch of different things you could do under it, like uh, consulting, or is it more maybe something like compensation where you're going to do a similar thing in compensation for every different job? Yeah, it's a great question. The way I think about it, Joe, is, um, is TM I, over the years, because I've done both the development side and the TM side, I, I really think of it as two different orientations. So one is a focus on the many. Right. So on culture, on performance, on developing the whole organization, inclusions in there, engagements in there, that's OD. Right. To me, that's distinct from TM because TM is about the few. It's about differentiation. It's about using our, our IO tools to identify talent, to target their development and to help managers and leaders and HR understand how to use data to make informed decisions about people and, and roles and succession. So they're kind of different pieces um, right out of the gate. So it's not an umbrella for everything. But under your point, Joe, there are elements that are underneath TM in many companies, right? So in, in organizations, TM can be a lot of different things to different people. But often it involves, and th this is based on some survey work we did, but often it involves the assessment work, high potential work, succession planning, talent reviews, um, sometimes selection. Sometimes, you know, not really acquisition as much, although sometimes, but, but often selection is there, maybe performance, maybe culture. So it's got a bunch of different layers underneath it, but it's not everything. Um, I don't know many organizations that have comp under TM, for example. Analytics is about 50% TM, 50% not. So some companies have a whole separate group, right? And some companies have a whole separate group for inclusion. So it just depends. But it's not the new name for HR. I will tell you that. People have asked me that over the years. It's not. It's a very specific set of areas primarily focused on, you know, growing individual leaders, not everybody, right? So even learning can fit under TM in some companies, but often learning is its own thing. That's a great, that's a great segue because I feel like when you say growing individual leaders, is there so are you constantly working with like the best performers or is it kind of just a seen as growth within the organization as a whole? So are you only working with the people who are like have that leadership potential or are you working with people as a whole trying to grow them? Yeah. So if you're doing both sides of the equation, Brandon, you do both. Right. Um, okay. And some of our tools and, and certainly at PepsiCo, this was the case, lend themselves to doing both at once. So if you have a really good leadership model and a really robust 360, let's just say and maybe you bring in the Hogan or something, you can develop as many people as you put through those processes broadly, but you can also target them to the high potentials, right? So you can do both. But generally the TM focus is going to be on, not necessarily the high performance branding, because we can talk performance versus potential and they're different, but generally it's going to be on the highest potential leaders and helping them kind of do a deep dive diagnostic for, for them personally to develop and grow, but also that same information if it's validated, can be used to make decisions in the organization at the senior most levels in terms of placement into roles, in terms of what experiences they might need, in terms of, you know, targeted coaching interventions, if that's necessary, whatever it is, um, it's the few, you know, just think about it as the many versus the few. I'm interested in what you said, performance versus potential. Um, can you just explain a little bit more about that idea? <laughs> sure. So a, a lot of organizations um, 
confuse performance and potential. And I've written about this a couple different times, and we kind of call it, um, Janine and I have done a, a chapter on this actually in the Silzer book, if you get it, um, called the, the Performance Potential Paradox. And the issue is that many companies use performance as an indicator of potential. And that's a challenge because while if they're poor performers, they probably don't have a lot of potential. If they're excellent performers, they may still not have a lot of potential. And so past performance doesn't necessarily suggest future performance in higher roles, in more advanced roles, only in the same kind of role, right? So that's a key distinction. And so um, there's a cool Ninebox article I've written um, in talent, on the Talent Quarterly website. You guys can find or put a search in if anybody wants to search it. Um, about the nine box, which is very common today, but the nine box people put in talent management, it's very common practice, performance and potential on two grids and look at them. But if performance is potential for you as an organization, it's a linear model, right? <laughs> so that doesn't help. Um, far better to think about performance as a gatekeeper, right? So performance, if you're really good or your average or better, we'll talk about you as a potential at some level, like what's your potential? versus your performance indicates your potential. And potential is really the capability to be more successful at higher levels, really, you know? Okay, so then, oh, sorry, Brent. Um, you go ahead. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good, Jeff. So if you say it as a, as a gatekeeper, performance is a gatekeeper yeah. potential, and then when you're measuring potential, are you measuring it against any other any other variables to see how it's, what else can impact it, or is it, kind of you're just measuring potential if that's yeah absolutely so again most companies will use performance sort of um beyond that they will have some form of i don't want to say generic but some form of internal perspective on what potential is right and it could be better or lesser informed by theory and research and, and kind of a framework so in some companies, again, we've done some benchmarking over the years, which says that most companies use performance and most companies use this idea of, of success at two level jump. So Joe, if you can be successful two levels from where you are, you're a high potential. But again, the question is, how do you know, right? How does somebody know that, right? I mean, so you're sitting in a talent review with a bunch of leaders and HR and you as the talent person, and the leaders are arguing about the potential of their people based on what? You know, based on their experience with them, sure. Based on their performance, of course, they're seeing it. But what's that potential indicator? So a lot of companies struggle with that. And that's why it's one of those ill-defined, um, you know, constructs. And part of the reason that, that I did the work I did on this thing called the Leadership Potential Blueprint with Rob Silzer um, is because we were both observing that in the field when this was becoming popular again in early, what, 2008-9. And that work, and you guys can go search this out too, it's called the Leadership Potential Blueprint, and it talks about how you can look at potential over a couple of different dimensions. So, Joe, to your point, there's kind of three basic tiers to that model, and the first is, is sort of foundational elements, right? So personality, do you, are you basically capable to relate to people well enough? Can you, you know, influence them? Can you sort of effectively connect? Um, do you have interpersonal savvy? Some of that stuff is, is there cognitive abilities, right? Are you a strategic thinker? Are you enough of one, right? I mean, you don't have to be off the charts, but um, to kind of have that potential to be at a higher level, because at more senior levels, you need to be more strategic in companies, just bottom line. So that's your baseline. The next level is motivation. And, you know, that's kind of your career trajectories and your growth trajectories. Um, in the growth level, motivation and learning agility, essentially there. 
So now we're talking about, so you're, you're, you have the personality, you have the cognitive. Now, are you interested in being a higher leader, right? Joe, do you want to get promoted? Do you want to be top of the food chain? Do you want to be CHRO one day? Do you want to be the CEO? Well, then you have a lot of motivation and drive to be successful, but can you learn? If we put you in new experiences and send you somewhere to learn in a new job, will you learn and apply that learning, right? So that's the mid-level. The third level is career, and that's kind of leadership competencies that we all know about well. Are you a good leader? Do you, you, know, do you motivate people? Do you give them feedback? That kind of thing. And do you have your functional knowledge that you need? So those six together, you know, the big three, if you will, foundational uh, growth and career, and the six within encompass 95% of all high potential frameworks that anybody could use. And so once we put that out there, a bunch of companies are using it. We adapted it at PepsiCo um, and built our leadership framework around that so we could assess all those components. And then you really get into interesting stuff. So potential becomes something that is measured, Joe. And the ideal nine box, as you'll see in that article on Talent Quarterly, is organizational perception of potential. So what do managers think potential is and what does the data say? And that's where it gets really cool because you can say in a room with these leaders, they love this person. They think they have a ton of potential, but their data is horrible, right? They don't treat their direct reports well, um, or they don't connect with their peers well, or they're not showing strategic thinking in a simulation or whatever it might be. Uh, and then there are others who have been overlooked, quite frankly, you know, and sometimes that's even diverse talent. And they've been overlooked, and you don't know why when they score super well on the tools. And those two ends of the spectrum, you know, it's not perfect ever, but those two ends of the spectrum really get you to the nine box idea that should be used, right? So go figure out why the ones you love are not doing well and help them and go figure out why you're not picking the ones that do really well and you don't like them as much. That's really, that's a really awesome way to put that for us. I feel like I understand it a lot more when you, when you explain it that way, you know, you hit a part about motivation in there and I, Joe and I are taking a motivation course. I saw him smile. Same question. <laughs> Uh, we're taking a course on motivation right now. Uh, but I, I'm sure this is probably the same question that Joe has, but looking at motivation, how do you measure that for, uh, how have you measured that at PepsiCo when looking at that in that nine step plan? Yeah. So in the, in the, um, in the blueprint motivation is kind of that ambition and drive and commitment, if you will, you know, interest in taking on more, right. It's, it's about learning and, um, wanting to do more and having that hunger, you know, to, to achieve. Um, you can measure that through various tools. I mean, the Hogan has some of it. There are personality tools that get at some of that, but it's a little more than just the personality. Um, and so one of the ways that we've measured it over the years at PepsiCo, because uh, it was embedded in our framework, um, is kind of in the learning and growth dimensions, if you will, of the leadership models we have, right? So in the current grade five leadership model, PepsiCo, that we built two or three years ago before I retired, growth and learning, um, I mean, gr uh, yeah, growth is really it, right? Growth is the main one there and agility a little bit. But um, in that context, you basically ask questions on 360, you look at motivation under the personality, and you even test it through some of the simulations or interviews if you do uh, structured interviews. And you get it through questions such as, you know, um, interest in taking on bigger roles. This person is, you know, engaging and acting like they're a higher level leader than they are today. Um, you know, this person learns well and adapts quickly. Uh, this person is motivated to, to, you know, expand beyond their current thinking, right? Really showing the signs that they're motivated to learn and actually do so. So that's, that's a great point. 
I, I have one question about that. And I feel like our high, cause we kind of talked about performance and we talked about motivation now and looking at people who are motivated in those performers, especially those high performers. Um, wouldn't those people, and I guess you probably get asked this a lot, be prone to more burnout because they're also the types of people who are probably putting in the most. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Um, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people burn out in corporate America, period. Right? I think that's just the challenge, period. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, you do run the risk if you assess motivation and then start to push people, they can burn out. But the sort of the reason, Brandon, that motivation is key to high potential is that it's there and they're going to capitalize on it. Right. So if you're burning out, um, which is, you know, certainly understandable and fine, it happens to probably all of us at some point anyway in their career, at least somewhere. The reality is you're probably going to fall off the track for a while. Right. So potential isn't permanent either. It really shouldn't be a permanent state of being. Once you're a high potential, you shouldn't be forever. Um, but, you know, if there's a period in your life where and this is why in the in the framework, in the blueprint, this is why it's growth as a dimension. If there's a period in your life where you're not motivated as much, right, you maybe have family commitments or significant others or lifestyle issues or health issues or whatever it is, kids, you know, whatever, dual income, and you're not as motivated to take on more, that's okay, right? I mean, that's fine, but you probably are not in the high potential pool at the moment in some cases, simply because you can't do what they want you to do in the company, right? So it's constantly, it's not something that's just it's like a snapshot of a moment. It's not necessarily, and it's fluid, so it can change later on. That's right. So that's right. More like a continuous snapshot. Yeah. So you think about the foundational stuff in that framework, and and that's kind of what it is, right? So you are who you are, which is why I say the Hogan doesn't entirely get at motivation. It has some of it, but ambition, but that's more who you are. But the growth element of that model is more fluid, to your point, kind of life stage dependent, um, experience dependent, some other things. So you can have periods in your life where you're super motivated. I mean, the two of you are probably like willing to do anything as soon as you get a chance. Like, hey, give me this opportunity. I'll take it. I'll drive. I'll deliver for you. Mm -hmm. um, but in 20 years or 15 years, the both of you might say, you know what? I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing. I don't need to just go off and do something else somewhere else in the, in the company or a different company just to grow. I'd rather, you know, consolidate my learning, spend some time impacting people, maybe focusing on external stuff at some level, whatever it might be. And then, you know, five, 10 years later, you might say, you know what? I'm ready again. Give me more. Right. And, you know, you get back in the pool. I know uh, one thing that we talked about before we started um, recording, but it's come up a lot in what you've been saying about data and data driven. Yeah. These, these concepts that you're talking about, have you seen um, a change in the way we look at data or emphasize data from now versus when you first started your uh, adventure into organizational <laughs> psychology? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I think um, during the 90s, and this is not just me personally, but certainly the field, and I've written about this, during the 90s, you know, surveys were just starting out. Um, they've been around before, but they weren't institutionalized. And 360 was just like, shiny new object, right? It's a BSO, we call it, bright, shiny object. Um, 360 was new. It was cool. This was even pre-online ability too. They were talking paper back then. But it was people exploring the use of 360 and there were concerns about confidentiality. There were concerns about who sees it, what do you do with it? Um, and part of what I did for 10 years with Warner Burke was build new 360s for companies that hadn't done it yet um, and, and try to help them understand how to do it. And that was all developmental Joe. I mean, like that wasn't 
give the data to people to make decisions. That was give it to individual leaders to help them grow, right? Again, the many, the OD side. Um, since the, the 2000s and certainly the last, you know, 15 years or so, data A, people are more comfortable with data, right? Period. Um, B, technologies improved to the point that data is accessible all over the place and, and collectible more easily. And then people just want the data now. They, they know it's there. 360 is common. I mean, it's so common that it's hard to talk about how to make it new and novel sometimes. But the data is there. And so people and organizations are comfortable now and they want to use it. Right. So if you have data, why aren't we using it? What's the point if we're not using it? Right. So the idea of individual development alone, some companies still do it for sure. But a lot of companies are saying if we're paying for something on our people, getting data on them, why aren't we having the opportunity to leverage that to make decisions or at least inform our development agenda, our leadership programs or what we might do with people? So there's been a massive change in how people think about and use data in organizations. That's it. I'm wondering, would that change have been based off of, because I know like in tech, for example, Google, Facebook, they're constantly using data, but not, not in the, the way that we are talking about right now. But did that create that change within organizations? Like when companies like that came into existence and were utilizing data the way they were, did that change happen internally? It's interesting. I don't, I mean, I don't want to say anything, you know, about my colleagues in those companies, which are great companies, but I don't think they're use of data was people data in the same way, right? I think they may have gotten people comfortable with data, period, but so has iPhone, you know, so have iPhones and all kinds of tools where you connect. More likely, um, it's simply the growing acceptance of technology in society and the increased need for organizations to have synergies and cost benefits from having integrated tools and systems in HRAS. And the two of those together, you know, I'm more comfortable now with tools. I'm more comfortable with online surveys. I'm more comfortable with um, data coming back at me. Now, you know, where is that, that data about people as leaders? And so I think it's more that as a general kind of acceptance than necessarily those two companies driving it. Though I'm sure they drove some of the broader perspective on technology in general, for sure. Um, I would say our friends at Apple too, probably, right? Yeah. So, so kind of like a growing field in, in people analytics. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah, that's right, Joe. And, and that didn't exist before either, right? So when I was in 2000 to 2006 or seven, I was doing HR analytics, but it wasn't even a term. I mean, it, sure, it existed, but I mean, it wasn't like a function. Um, I simply had data. We were doing trends on, on promotion rates and people coming in and leaving. What's the pipeline look like and um, how to project out how many leaders we need, but we weren't calling it that, you know, and, and now PepsiCo has a whole, has a whole function on it, you know. And do you, do you see a growing, because I know actually one of our recent Metro events that we had was uh, uh, data with storytelling, because mm -hmm. I know maybe when data was introduced and then you just, you know, tell a executive like, oh, we have this mean, this average and all this stuff. And they're like, the hell is that? Like, what does this mean? Like, <laughs> right. do, you, do you see like a, maybe like a growing need for that storytelling or is that, is that kind of like a learned skill that you had to acquire or that maybe tell other people how to do? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great point. And I mean, it's interesting as far back as the nineties, we were talking about the need to storytell. Um, and Janine and I wrote a survey book in 98, 2000, as well as an OD book. And both of them have in it the need to be able to tell stories about data. Now, back then it was survey data. We were talking about more likely in 360 summary data, but it's always been there. Because the, the challenge is, you know, leaders, HR leaders, line leaders, managers, everybody likes data now and they expect to have it. And when they have it, 
their skill is variable in how to use it, right? Um, and so even at the analytics people, there are many straight HR metrics people, and this is not to, you know, cost this version on them, but there are many people who just focus on what the data says and are not thinking about the storytelling aspect to either make it compelling and or in the context of what I'd call values-driven data analytics, right, or values-driven data, um, which is more about does this data point, does this story actually drive people to do bad things, right? Just because it says that, we have to be careful that we don't reinforce and or drive people in the wrong direction. We should be thinking about the implications of the data and the story we're telling so that at least the caveats are there if people are going to follow the wrong direction. <laughs> um, and, and you can position it that this is how it would drive positive change. So I think that's the watch out. So yeah, storytelling is huge now. The ability to convert any data, whether survey or 360 or assessment or any sort of data, um, you know, HR metrics as well. And then also overlaying that this IO perspective, right, on, on what's almost the right thing to do in some cases, you know? Right. The, the storytelling is interesting because even at that event at Metro, we all had an activity. And during that activity, we all were given a set of data and had to analyze it and interpret what it meant. And at, we had eight tables, I would want to say, and all eight tables had a different <laughs> idea of what the data said. So when you're talking about data and looking at it and telling a story with it, there is that, I guess, lens that people are looking at it through that can kind of change the perspective of how they view that data. So how do you kind of correct for that? Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, there's no data is data, right? But, um, but the interpretation can vary considerably based on to your point, lens and perspective and background you bring to it too, right? Even, um, and, and experience with data too. So the part of it, I think is, and, and this is what I worked on with my teams over the years. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of people work with me over the years, right? At PepsiCo in particular. Um, and, we always working together on, all right, here's what the data says. Now, what does it mean? What, how are you going to convey this to senior leaders? What are you saying? And, you know, often it's figuring out, honestly, not so much just what's unique, Brandon, but what's compelling to the leaders. Like, so you go into a data discussion with, all right, here are the leadership competencies that we have for the framework that we have in our company. We know these are important. Let's look at how those play out, right? That's pretty straightforward. On a survey, it might be, hey, we're really interested in knowing how different groups of people feel about the inclusiveness of the culture. And so we're going to deep dive there versus just looking at age or looking at, you know, tenure and how that works. That's great, but that's usually not a particularly interesting lens. But if you're straight analytics and you're not sort of thinking about what's the strategic agenda for that data, you probably stop in some cases at the basics that are there. It's interesting because I feel like, especially maybe in our classes in the Metro, we've always learned how data is helpful and how like our data-driven approach should be utilized going forward. But no one's ever talked about like, I guess you could say like the dark side of data or just, you know, like looking at it from there could be consequences. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Yeah. And, and Joe, Jason Narlock, who was the uh, a senior data guy at PepsiCo for a while, he and I wrote a piece. Um, I think it's also in Talent Quarterly, to be honest, around the dark side of data for HR. And I mean, a lot of people have written about this too, so it's nothing new, but, um, but it is definitely, you know, a danger that sometimes data is seen as absolute and in a way it is, but what it tells you may not be absolute, right? And learning that, you know, age is correlated with tenure is great, but no surprise, 
right? Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> I mean, so, and that, what does that really tell you that older workers have been here longer? What do you do with that? That's not meaningful, right? Um, likewise, if you were to find that there was some bias showing up in your organization based on, on looking at the data, you know, yeah, you should be doing something with that and taking action. Absolutely. But that's not something you're going to, you're going to basically be presenting as a, as a wow finding to people. You probably want to take that to legal and really do some corrective action with senior leaders, right? So it's an interesting dynamic. The, the other one along with data like that is AI. That's a whole nother ball of wax on. <laughs> probably have a whole episode on that. Yeah, you I could. You could have a whole episode on AI. That's still super hot now and continues, you know, it just continues. It's like whispers from like the darkness. Like we hear like AI, like machine learning and it's kind yeah, of coming yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. Well, and people think that's much more than it is right now too, right? Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, AI is seen as, you know, the cure-all of or the, the, the future of everything. And it's certainly got potential to have an impact, but it's only as good as the people that program it. And it's basically, I hate to say this, but one big regression. <laughs> or if you like, one big literal model. I mean, basically, it's taking data and predicting outcomes and then trying to, re, you know, refit itself. And, you know, you guys know if the data already has issues, right? Or if there's already existing things in that universe, you're going to replicate the universe. And that's a challenge with certain things. I feel like we could have an entire episode, like you said, with you about um, AI, about honestly, about half the topics we spoke about today. Uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time, but we wanted to pose one last question for our listeners out there. Um, do you have any advice for students who are either trying to get into the IO field or who are already in the IO field and still trying to figure out what they want to do? Uh, what advice could you give them uh, from your experience and your um, from your world of IO? Yeah, so going into IO, I mean, um, although it's a niche field as we talked about in a way, relative to psychology, relative to many things, it's actually pretty big <laughs> inside itself, right? Um, and SIOP continues to grow the Society for IO Psychology, which you know most people are in IO or members of or have been in their career. Um, that continues to grow every year, so the popularity is big and the 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 range of things you can do in IO is pretty wide. Um, not to mention taking that those insights and bringing them into HR jobs or other types of jobs, compensation, whatever. Um, so I would say for the people going into IO, try to learn as much about the different facets as you can, right? Try to get a taste of everything so you have a better sense of what you might want to do versus getting directed too early. Um, because what will happen is later on, as you specialize or you do different things, you'll realize you didn't get coverage at some point. And, and that'll be a challenge when you are in the IO programs and you're sort of thinking about the future, then it helps you to start thinking about how do I build up my skill set to enter the market in the types of areas I want. Right. And so I know there's very few places. I don't know. Uh, do you guys have a TM class specifically in your program? I don't think we haven't had one yet. No, I don't. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think in the second year. No. Okay. Um, so the one that I started at TC at teachers college was the first they've ever had too. I, I started doing it in 16 and it's been super popular. Um, and a lot of those, the people that come into that program into that course, I mean, most are masters or some PhDs, but most are masters in there and they're all interested in the TM field. Right. And so that's a, a, a good kind of setup because they get a, a range of TM, but if you don't have a course, then you want to think about taking leadership development. If there's an assessment course, if there's 360 courses, leadership competency courses, personality, um, if there's something on succession, maybe would be great. Those are the kind of areas if you wanted to go into TM that you want the skills on. If you want to do engagement, then shift over to other types of things, culture, 
you know, change management, a survey tech, um, you know, engagement course, if there's something on that or motivation is probably cool related to that. Um, so I'd, I'd be thinking that way if you're headed in that direction as well. And if you like learning, then you want to you want to focus on leadership development and training a little bit more, you know, and how to build programs that are cool and how to do effective evaluation. Um, so it just depends. Uh, you know, you don't want to over specialize too soon, because honestly, guys, once you get out of the program and you take your first job, you're going to see things that you didn't learn anyway. And that's cool. Like you learn a lot in this field. I would never have come up with the term TM before I was in Pepsi. And some of the things I learned there, I learned from colleagues, not from school, you know. Um, I mean, Teachers College was not a, a huge assessment organization from, in terms of what they taught. Um, but one of my colleagues, Chris Rotolo, um, had a deep background in that. And so I learned with him. You know, it was great. And he went on to some other cool stuff and I took over the mantle. And now everybody thinks that that's my background, but it's not. I'm an OD guy by, at heart, you know. But 360 feedback data, I love data. And so they kind of play in both zones. So if I have a good sense of the data, and how to write good 360 items, how to leverage that data, how to see insights, what to do with personality, what not to do with it, how to think about engagement. I can apply that to a lot of different places, you know? It's great advice. I, I think one thing I, I didn't realize coming into like the IO field is how much you could really do. I knew that it was, I was school psychology. I was like, oh, I don't want to do school psychology because I can only do school psychology or clinical. I can really only do clinical or mix of the both. I knew I was like, oh, maybe I do this, maybe I do this. And then when you get into the field, you're like, wow, there's actually way more than I thought. Um, but it is good advice that, you know, keep your eyes open and maybe not specialize too soon and get a taste for a little bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, even, even the things like coaching, right? I mean, if you guys have a coaching course or even, even group dynamics, I know that's kind of social psych. And again, my original training is social and org, but even group dynamics is interesting to take as a course, just to see how people interact. Because if you're out there on TM and you're in the, in the room with all these senior leaders, you can watch the dynamics, right? And you can watch who's respecting whose power structure. I mean, it does help you be more influential if you can figure out what's going on. So a lot of it applies. It just might not be labeled the way you think it is. I personally had a business undergrad and with like psych minor and HR minor. And I was just scrolling through LinkedIn. I think it was honestly today. And I was just looking at people's LinkedIn's and I was seeing that they, even people in my business classes who did not have any idea what IO was, were in IO related fields, whether it was like literally talent management. I had a friend who I just saw was in talent management. I have another friend who's doing consulting, like all these people who were just doing things in business without even a master's in IO are working in IO. So it's, it is a really broad field for our prospective students out there and you can find your way in a lot easier. That's interesting you say that, Brandon. So I just uh, finished a piece with, um, uh, that's going, we just submitted it. Uh, with Bob Eichinger, um, Ron Perlman, and um, Dave Ulrich. And it's one of the things we talk about is the fact that TM is not led by specialists today. Um, and it's seen as, a, for the most part, and in fact, in, a, in sort of the groups I've connected with over the years, heads of TM, very few were, were I.O., generally speaking, the heads. There's often I.O. teams underneath and they're in good roles underneath, but the heads are often HRBPs who are getting great experience in the TM field, learning from their people, right? Um, but not actually leading it. So, you know, one of the things that I think we want to do, and, and to the students out there who are interested in this area and going into it, yeah, you want to get out there and really drive good practice in this area and, and show that you can add value as a psychologist, as an IO psychologist, because 
um, that's where we really do make an impact, you know, and it's not just changing things or the bright, shiny objects or whatever. It's helping people understand how to use data, right? How to use it effectively, how to think about tools and models and strategy and why would we care about potential if we're just asking for some, right? Why get today is get me some of that potential. It used to be get me some of that 360, right? So why, right? Are you trying to build your bench? Do you want to identify people lower in the organization? Are you trying to create successors for your senior most team? What's your strategy? And, you know, IO people are great for thinking that way, right? If you get some systems thinking in there, it's fantastic. And then figure out the tools that are going to make the most impact. So I think IO is, you know, great for doing TM and many other things, LD. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's on all of us coming into the, or all of you coming into the field, right? Uh, to to learn how to make that impact. Yeah, I, I hope more people start seeing IO and applying to the programs because I feel like so many people would like it. It's just the word just isn't out there yet, but it's definitely, I know my undergrad last year finally like had an IO program come in and talk and that was the first I ever heard of it. So I think it's, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, the name is not the easiest and, and PSYOP, you guys can look it up, but PSYOP over the years has tried to think about changing the name and it's just, it, there's such a history with it that it's hard, but there's no, there's no jobs called IO psychologists, very few called IO psychologists, right? So it's more, and this is advice I always give to my students too, when they're coming out of the program, um, you know, don't focus on the title even so much, right? Because the titles change, the trends change, um, focus on what the job does and how it can leverage your background uh, in data, in theory and insights and research and whatever it might be, culture, leadership to drive change in the organization in a positive way. And there are a ton of ways you can do that. And you can do it even in other types of roles, Joe, that not even called TM, right? So um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, it would be great if it was called like business psychology or something, or even straight organizational psychology. But even then over the years, you know, I've been on planes or something and somebody says to you, hey, what do you do? You say, I'm an organizational psychologist. And like, oh, are you going to psychoanalyze the organization or are you going to psychoanalyze me? So it's, it's just hard. People don't think of it in layman terms. But, um, but yeah, it's a broad field and you can have an impact in a lot of different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wish we could talk for hours. But, <laughs> uh, but again, thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for giving our listeners a rundown of what you do. Um, I think this is going to be a great episode for everyone to listen to, especially getting into the field and hearing about all the different types of assessments that you can use and really just what IO is about. Um, 100%. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. I uh, look forward to seeing this out there in the in the space, yeah. right? Th this one comes out soon. Um, <laughs> look, at, look at the schedule, but yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be great. Great. Thanks, yeah. guys. Bye. So, wow, Dr. Church, he has an extensive background and knowledge. I think our prospective students are really going to love to hear everything that he had to offer. Joe, what do you think about all that that he said? Yeah, this is definitely a must watch for by the perspective. You're in the field. Um, someone like Dr. Church, who has been in this field for a while, it's just the experience that he can share with us about uh, the certain jobs, the certain aspects of the field that you should look into, maybe you shouldn't look into. Um, it's, it's definitely worth hearing about. I, I, I mean, I learned a lot too, just from hearing what he had to say. Yeah. I mean, we, we've listened to him talk now twice and every single time I feel like I'm taking something new away. Obviously you said, he said he's a professor over at the teacher's college at Columbia. So he has a lot of knowledge and experience and he graduated from there too. 
you know, as a prospective student out there, I highly suggest following him on LinkedIn and just kind of seeing his background. It's not as or it's not necessarily like conventional in the sense that IO wasn't around when he started, but it's really interesting to see how he stayed with the company for such a long time. Uh, you don't you don't see that as much anymore either. <laughs> no, and we know that he's presenting at SIA. Um, so if you're attending SIA, definitely check out his presentation. I think Friday it was. Uh, we'll check that. But uh, <laughs> either way, it's it was Friday. Yeah, um, either way, check that. Check out his um, his presentation. Check out his research. He's written a lot of articles. He's written a lot of research. He has so much knowledge. Like as a prospective student, Joe and I highly suggest to take a look at him online because he's definitely one of the most experienced people we've met in the field. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, thanks everybody for listening. Um, hopefully, you come back next week and hear our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.